Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Listener. Listener. <laughs> We're banking on having at least one listener today. And if that's you, thank you. We're glad you have chosen to join us today. <laughs> I'm leaving that in. <laughs> that's where my confidence level is right now, Christy. It's amazing. You know what? Even if there is just one of you listening, we're happy to bring you today's episode. That's right. We're so happy to be with you today and to wish you a Merry Christmas. Christmas is fast approaching, and we hope that you will all be able to enjoy the holiday with your family or loved ones. Because that's what we plan to do. Absolutely. And with that being said, in order for us to more fully enjoy time with our families, we are going to take another break this year, but only for two weeks. And then we will be back to our regular schedule on January 4th. But we will post our question and answer episode. So you don't miss us too much while we're away. That's right. A little bonus just for you to let you know our appreciation. Because we really do appreciate you coming back and listening. We do. We hope that you will decide to come back in January and forgive us for taking a little break. It's our Christmas present to ourselves. That's right. And in turn, it will give us time to recuperate and get working on some new cases for the new year. I've already got something in the works for the new year. I'm really curious what you're going to bring us. I haven't quite decided for sure what my first case will be in the new year, but every case that we discuss is equally important, including the one that I'm going to share with you today. You've got a Christmas case for us, don't you? Absolutely, I do. One thing I have noticed since doing this podcast with Melissa is that the holidays seem to be a dangerous time for family violence. Some studies state that stress and depression rise during the holidays suggesting this rise as a contributing factor to more crimes within families. Perhaps Christmas is a prime time for familial homicides because it increases the opportunity of gathering multiple victims together in one place. Or perhaps it just seems like family murders happen more often during the holidays because we hear about them more. Christmas should be a time of love and giving, not a time filled with an amount of hate and resentment that could prompt a person to do the unthinkable. Murder is always horrible. But when a family is annihilated during Christmas time, it comes across as even more horrifying and shocking. The case we are discussing today took Carnation, Washington by storm because it involved three generations of one family. This is a devastating case, and I will warn you that it does involve children. It is always rough when you see a family completely destroyed through generations. It really is. Especially because our families are the ones who should be looking out for us and caring about us the most. Which definitely is not the case with the dirtbags in today's episode. And I find that those murders that take place around the holidays, they have a little bit more sting to them because now every holiday after that is ruined as well. That is true. I didn't even really think of that aspect, but it would. It would be haunting every Christmas from here on out. Right. Every death has an anniversary. But to have that prolonged period of celebration where everybody else is happy, but that's the anniversary of your family member's death would be so difficult. Right. And because Christmas is so celebrated across the globe, it would constantly be in your face from November on. 
there wouldn't be an escape from it. No, that is true. Carnation is a city in King County in the state of Washington. It is a 37-minute drive to Washington's biggest city, Seattle. I'm not sure why Carnation isn't considered a town rather than a city, because it has a very small population. In 2007, when this case took place, the population was a couple of hundred people shy of 2,000. And it isn't much bigger now, just barely over 2,000. Was it once a really densely populated area? No, it's a very forested area. Huh. The actual area of Carnation is quite small as well. However, although it is tiny in space and people, it is mighty in its agricultural productivity. It is one of the biggest producers in the Northwest region. From what I read, Carnation is filled with farm families who have sometimes known each other for generations. It is a tight-knit community, everyone seemed to know each other, and the worry of crime was the furthest thing from most of their minds, especially during the holidays. Sadly, Carnation went from a place of safety and camaraderie to the place of one of the worst family annihilations to ever happen in the entire state of Washington. Oh, man. On Christmas Eve, December 24, 2007, a 911 call was made to the King County Dispatch Center at 5.13 p.m. When the operator answered the call, all they could hear was screaming and noise in the background. The call only lasted 10 seconds before it was disconnected. The dispatcher tried to call back twice, and when both calls went to voicemail, they dispatched two patrol cars to the location where the call was coming from at 5.19 p.m. The dispatcher indicated to police that the sounds on the phone were more likely coming from a party going on in the background. Nothing serious, maybe just an argument, because that is what it sounded like to them. Did somebody purposely hang up? Yes. Two different deputies arrived at the rural property simultaneously at 5.45 p.m. The property was large and had a locked gate at the entrance. After finding the gate locked, the officers decided that it was best to just turn back around and dismiss the call. No way. Despite the property not being fenced. What? Seriously. They had turkey dinner to get home to? Maybe. This was one of those properties that has a freestanding gate on the road leading to the home. This means that all the officers would have had to do was go around the gate and proceed on the dirt road to investigate why the short 911 call was made. But for whatever reason, they didn't. I do not understand it, and this decision would be called into question later. Police would catch heat for this. So they just didn't want to get out of their cars and walk down the laneway? It sounded like they could have even just driven around it. It was just a gate at the end of a dirt road. With no ditch on either side of the driveway. I'm not sure. Regardless, even if there was a ditch, they could have walked around it. Oh man, no wonder they got some heat for that. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like the dispatcher had already set the stage that this wasn't too big of a deal. Right. Regardless, they were already there. They should have checked it out. Oh, for sure. A party or not going on, if that's what the dispatcher thought, an argument can escalate to something sinister pretty quickly. It can, but in a sleepy little town, that's not the first thought. No. And while they were catching heat from this, representatives of the police force were like, we will get to that, but that's not our concern right now. Our concern is the case. So I don't know for sure what ended up happening. I don't think anybody was really held accountable. Really? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's too bad. But hopefully those officers have learned their lesson personally then. And the 911 dispatcher. Right. Some people did argue that police have to have probable cause to enter a locked premises, 
But I would think that a 911 call being placed from inside the home would warrant a welfare check at the very least. Yeah, that's probable cause. Yeah. Even for me, one of my, well, actually all three of my daughters called 911 when they were little. And the police did actually show up at our door for one of them because they couldn't get through trying to call us back to make sure everything was okay. And here two officers showed up at my door. But maybe it's different in Canada. I don't know. Maybe. But it seems like there should be some follow through on that. For sure. Apparently, the police could not see the home from the gate, but they did speak to a neighbor who said they didn't hear anything out of the ordinary. So they didn't want to do the work of going around and walking down the laneway, but they went and talked to neighbors or they talked to neighbors after the fact. No, I think there was a neighbor there. So I don't know if a neighbor happened to be driving by or if they actually went to a neighbor's. It wasn't clear. Okay. The neighbor that they did speak to said that they didn't hear anything out of the ordinary. But if the house is set way off the road, how likely is it that they would hear anything? Very unlikely. This area could be considered remote. It was described as being a well-wooded area. Homes are hundreds of feet away from one another, and neighbors could easily go days in between even seeing each other. Sadly, police would not return to the property for another two days, until Wednesday, December 26th, the day after Christmas when a second 911 call would be placed from inside the home. Oh, your heart would drop with that one coming in, I think. Mm-hmm. At this point, you might be wondering who lives in this home where the 911 calls were placed from. So before we get to the second 911 call, let's talk about the Anderson family. Wayne Scott Anderson, who was age 60 at the time of the murders, was born on May 31, 1947 in Tuscan, Arizona. He grew up mostly in the California area and graduated high school and college there. He served in the armed forces during the Vietnam War and then married the love of his life, Judy, on September 30, 1972, when he was 25 years old. Eight years into their marriage, the couple moved to Carnation. Over a 27-year span, Wayne worked his way up with the company Boeing, ultimately becoming a tool engineer. In his obituary, he was described as being honest, hardworking, a great storyteller, and having a positive attitude. He loved to fish, loved food, enjoyed rebuilding Ford cars, and was always there to help his children and community. He was lovingly referred to as an M&M, crusty on the outside and soft and sweet on the inside. Oh, that is such a perfect description. <laughs> Isn't that so cute? That melted my heart a little. Wayne's wife, Judith Elaine Fisher, or Judy, was born on March 20th, 1946 in Michigan. She was a year older than Wayne, making her 61 when the murders took place. Judy was raised in Michigan and attended college in Detroit. After she and Wayne moved to Carnation, Judy worked with the U.S. Postal Services as a mail carrier for 17 years. Because she had the same route for so long, people in the community really came to know and love her. Judy liked to spend her time taking care of her family. She enjoyed quilting, sewing, playing the piano, and cooking delicious meals. And I thought, what a match made in heaven. She enjoyed cooking, and he enjoyed eating. That is awesome. Together, the couple had three children, a son named Scott Russell, and two daughters, Mary Victoria and Michelle Kristen. By 2007, Judy and Wayne had been married for 35 years. They lived on a beautiful 10-acre piece of land at 1910 346th Avenue in Carnation, and were both enjoying a new chapter in life. Their children were grown, and they now had grandchildren whom they adored. Oh, that is the life, right? Yeah. That's what we're aiming for one day. <laughs> one day. <laughs> yeah, not yet, but one day. Mary was moved out of the family home and had three sons. 
Scott was moved out and married to a lovely woman named Erica. Together, they had a daughter and a son. The youngest daughter, Michelle, lived in a trailer on the family property with her boyfriend, Joseph, or Joe as he went by. Being a postal worker, on December 26, Judy was expected back to work after celebrating the Christmas holiday. She had become best friends with a fellow colleague named Linda Thiel. Linda arrived at work early in the morning, around 7 o'clock, and noticed that her friend was not there yet. She thought this was odd, but didn't think too much of it at first. I believe it was after about a half hour, and Judy still not walking through the door, that Linda tried calling Judy, but Judy didn't answer. Linda got a strong, uneasy feeling and became increasingly worried about her friend, so much so that she decided to go and promptly check on Judy. Oh no, and is she going to be the one that makes the 911 call? She is. Linda got to the Anderson property just before 8 o'clock in the morning. She discovered that the front gate was locked, so unlike the police two days earlier, Linda decided to walk around the gate and proceed to the house. The house was quiet when she knocked on the front door. No one answered. Linda peeked in through the window and saw two adults and one child lying motionless on the floor. Linda tried the handle and realized that the door was unlocked. Upon entering, Linda was faced with a horrific and somber scene. She recognized the body of her best friend's son laying on the floor. Immediately, her brain went to a possible carbon monoxide poisoning. When she rushed over to him, Linda could clearly see that Scott Anderson had been shot in the head. Close to Scott was the body of a woman and a child. Linda assumed the woman was Judy. She said later that she was too afraid to go and look to find out for certain. This was her closest friend. She couldn't bring herself to see her like that. No, she couldn't. I just know it was a very traumatic experience for Linda. It would be. Linda didn't bring her cell phone into the house with her, so she quickly ran into Judy and Wayne's bedroom to call 911 on their landline phone. She would later say that she was terrified. She had no idea if the person who did this was still in the home. This had to have been a living nightmare for her. I watched a few of her interviews, and you can clearly see how much she loved her friend. When the 911 operator answered the call, Linda stated, quote, Hi, there's been a murder. I just came up. She, meaning Judy, works with me. When the operator asked her who is there, Linda says, quote, There's a baby, a man and a woman, and she's my best friend. The operator stayed on the phone with Linda until police arrived. I am always taken aback by how many people are affected when a dirtbag makes these kind of decisions. I'm sure they were only thinking of their victims, but the people that find them are so traumatized. Oh, everybody that loved and cared about these people would have been affected. Even the community, even people who probably didn't even know them who lived in Carnation would have been shaken up by this. It's just so sad. It really is. When police entered the Anderson home, they discovered that there were actually four bodies in the living room, not just three like Linda had originally seen. Upon inspection, police confirmed that the man on the floor was Wayne and Judy's son, Scott. The woman close to him was his wife, Erica. The child that Linda saw was Scott and Erica's son. He was still clinging to his mother. Their daughter, Olivia, was the fourth victim found. She was huddled up behind her mother, Erica. It was clear that in Erica's last moments, she was trying to save her young children. All four victims had been shot in the head and were cold to the touch. That is so sad. It really paints a picture of what happened. Police were unable to find the homeowners, Judy and Wayne. That is until they expanded their search to outside the home. When an officer looked inside one of the sheds on the property, they found the loving couple placed there, also both shot in the head. 
I'm pretty confident in saying that this could have been the worst scene that any of the officers involved had ever come across. Lying in front of them were three generations of one family, all murdered in cold blood. To me, when a victim is shot in the head, there is no question the intent of the dirtbag. They were shooting to kill. Oh, absolutely. And when you say they were placed there, does that mean their bodies were moved after they were shot? They were. Police had 10 acres of crime scene to inspect. Three hours after arriving on the scene, Judy and Wayne's daughter Michelle and her boyfriend Joseph drove onto the property in their dark-colored pickup truck. As I mentioned, Michelle and Joseph lived on the property. Their modular home had a different address and was situated near the bottom of a long, steep driveway connected to Wayne and Judy's house. The homes were far enough away, and the terrain was forested enough that you couldn't stand at one house and see the other. Michelle and Joseph's reaction to the police being on the property was all too telling. Were they defensive? No, not at all. They played dumb. They drove in and asked if they could proceed to where their house was. In my mind, this was kind of like how you'd ask an officer if you could just scoot around a detour of some sort to be on your merry little way. They're like, hi, we live down there. Is it okay if we just go home? Not, uh, why are police at my parents' house? Yeah, they didn't ask at all. Yeah, that's really telling. It is. So they're the dirtbags. Absolutely they are. I'm going to read from one of the court documents that I found about how this was described, so you can understand just how absurd this situation was. It reads, quote, At the time the two arrived, there was a large police presence in what was otherwise a quiet and rural area. Yellow police tape was strewn across driveways and yards. There were dozens of police vehicles, mobile command centers, helicopters, and many, many uniformed and plainclothes personnel on the scene. There was also a very large press contingent with their own trucks, vans, and helicopters. Interestingly, neither Michelle Anderson nor Joe McEnroe ever asked what was going on or why they were not being allowed to return to their home. What? Neither of them inquired if the Anderson family was safe. Oh my goodness. Dumb dirtbags. Dumb, dumb dirtbags. Were they both in shock from what had happened? No. Or they just were stupid? I think this was an unexpected surprise for them. They weren't expecting to come back to the property and see this police presence. So they were panicking, I think, and just acting like, oh, we don't know what's going on. We just want to go home. Not even probably realizing how this was going to come across. So they didn't think quickly on their feet. No, not at all. I mean, it's a good thing because then they're caught really easily, but... Oh, yeah. Alarm bells were definitely ringing for the police. This is hard to even fathom. They might as well have had t-shirts made that said, we are the dirtbags responsible, and walked right up to the officer in charge wearing them. To me, that's what I pictured. Yeah. I'm trying to understand why they thought this was going to work. Yeah, they obviously weren't thinking. Because any decent, rational human being who pulls onto their property and sees this, it's not one or two officers. There's even helicopters. There's news. There's all these things going on. You'd want to know what was going on. Yeah. You'd be scared for your family. You would. You would be in a panic demanding what's going on, trying to get into the house, trying to see if your family is okay. Not like, oh, let me just scoop by you here and we're just going to go down there. It's totally irrational behavior. It really is. Needless to say, red flags were flying and the two were separated and promptly interviewed by detectives. Initially, they both told the same story. They said that on the morning of December 24th, they woke up and decided that they were going to drive to Las Vegas that day and get married. What? <laughs> yes. 
They said they informed Michelle's parents of their plan and said that the parents expressed excitement and happiness about the news. This is all a lie. It's not a believable story, but okay. This is the one they're going with. Exactly. They also said that Wayne and Judy already had plans for the day with Michelle's brother and his family. Scott and Erica, both aged 32, were planning to visit Scott's parents for Christmas Eve with their two children, five-year-old Olivia Ryan and three-year-old Nathan Scott. Michelle said that they had been to her parents' house twice on Christmas Eve, once to get her wallet and once to grab some fruit from the kitchen counter. I guess just in case they got snacky on their way to their fake wedding. I actually looked up how long it would take to drive from Carnation, Washington to Las Vegas, Nevada, and according to Google, it would take almost 18 hours. The math ain't mathin'. It's not mathin', because no one's driving 18 hours on the same day they want to get married. To explain why they were back and not married, the couple said that they got lost, and so they decided to just turn back and go home. Thankfully, though, the pair did not stick to the Vegas story that they had concocted as an alibi. Because it sucked? Yeah, like them. Before long, both dirtbags were singing like canaries and confessed to the brutal and heartless slayings of six of Michelle's family members. And let me guess, they both blamed each other. Uh, Not exactly. Oh, really? Yeah. I'm going to go over what happened during the horrendous murders, but first I do want to discuss what led up to them. Michelle, as we know, was Judy and Wayne's daughter and Scott's sister. When she gives her confession, she alludes to the fact that it was her family's fault that the situation happened. Basically that they had it coming. There's the mark of a dirtbag. Blame the victim. Oh, she absolutely does. She seemed to be conveniently leaving out the fact that she was jealous, felt entitled, and had been given a good life that most would be grateful for. Others described her as always playing the victim and seeing the worst in a situation. Kind of like if you looked at her the wrong way, she felt bullied by you and would make a stink about it. Oh, this type of personality ticks me off. Me too. If any of you listening know someone like this, you know that this is challenging to have a healthy relationship with someone who is this way. That are always the victim. And cries about it. And can only see the world from their perspective. Right. Oh, that is difficult. Yeah. I have resting bee face, and so this would not have worked good for me because she would have thought I was always giving her a dirty look. It's gotten me into trouble more than one time. (laughs) I actually almost got stabbed because of it once. (laughs) In the (laughs) 7-Eleven. Yep. Joseph, on the other hand, did not have a loving, stable home to grow up in. Joseph's mother was not the motherly type. It was said that she was more preoccupied with gaining male attention than she was concerned about the welfare of her four children. It sounded as though she would be out canoodling with men while her kids sat in a messy house without a meal prepared to eat. Joseph had to grow up quickly. His mother did not do the things needed to take care of her kids. So Joseph stepped up when he was still just a child himself. He took care of his half-siblings and took care of the household duties to the best of his ability. They moved around a lot, and Joseph told accounts of abuse at the hands of the men in his mother's life. He said that one man even tried to drown him. So does he develop a complex of having to take care of people? Kind of, he does. Which is perfect for Michelle, who is always the damsel in distress. Exactly. We've said this before, but this is a recipe for disaster. Likely as a result of his childhood being taken away from him, Joseph did become socially awkward. He also had a speech impediment of some sort. It sounded kind of like a lisp. These things combined would have made it hard for him to make friends. While other little boys were preoccupied with Hot Wheels and baseball, Joseph was looking for something to eat for him and his siblings. He would later say that he was trying to protect Michelle. 
which goes along with what you were saying, which is understandable with him being the protector for his siblings. That is, if you buy his story. I do believe that his childhood was not ideal, but it definitely does not excuse what a horrible monster he would become at the nudging of his girlfriend. If you are a protector, how can you bring yourself to murder two innocent little children? I recognize that he did have a rough childhood, but I personally am not buying what he's selling. That's a big stretch. Well, he contradicts himself. I'm just trying to protect. I try to take care of people. Well, then why did you murder two innocent children? Or any of those innocent people. Right. Let alone two children. Exactly. But him and Michelle felt slighted by the adults when the children had nothing to do with it. Okay. So he had an excuse, per se, for the adults, at least in his mind. Right. There was no valid excuse, but they believed that they had one. And that's where I'm saying the children would have been separate from that. But he tells why he does that too, which we'll get into. Both Joseph and Michelle were 29 years old when they committed the murders. Joseph worked at a local Target store as a cashier, and Michelle was unemployed. They were living on Judy and Wayne's property for free. Oh, man. The couple had met through an online fantasy fiction chat room and had been together for six years. Because they're living in a freaking fantasy. That's a good point. And I watched one documentary. I don't know if this is true. But apparently Michelle had told Joseph at the beginning that she looked like, is her name Sarah Croft from Tomb Raider? Oh, Laura Croft. Laura Croft. (laughs) (laughs) She had said she looked like Laura Croft from Tomb Raider. And then when he met her, she did not look like Laura Croft, but he was okay with it. He still fell in love with her. That's kind of foreshadowing for their whole relationship, isn't it? They tell one story, but the truth is the exact opposite. True. I find it interesting that they met in a fantasy world when it seems like they lived in one. It's very true. Not even paying any rent. No, not even having a job at 29. Yeah. Come on. Michelle told police that her brother Scott owed her money from years ago. (laughs) A debt that only she remembered. Exactly. He had good employment as a carpenter and hadn't paid her back. The two would argue about this money. I am unsure how much it was or if he even owed her anything. My guess it was something minuscule if it was. According to Michelle, though, she said it was a lot of money. But she also pointed out that he hadn't borrowed anything from her in recent years. So they couldn't track it. Right. She was making it sound like it was thousands. I don't really believe that. Still, thousands isn't worth somebody's life. No, that's exactly what I wrote next. That somehow she didn't understand that no amount of money is worth killing someone over, especially your family. And I thought as well that if you kill somebody who owes you money, you're not getting the money anyways. So why kill them? (laughs) It's true. It doesn't give you the money. But Michelle was furious about the situation and became irate with her parents because they sided with her brother. They weren't making him pay her back. Probably because they didn't believe the debt existed. No, and to me, this is so juvenile. This is a debt from years ago, and you're basically crying and whining that he hasn't paid you back and wanting mommy and daddy to make him do it. And these are both two grown adults. Yeah, grow up. Well, grown adults who's still living on her parents' property and mooching off her parents. Right. Michelle expressed that she used to be much closer to Scott before he married Erica. My guess is that she was jealous of the time and energy that he spent on his wife, which is exactly where his time and energy should have been. Michelle seemed like the type to view this as something being taken away from her, rather than being happy for her brother. Scott had built a life with Erica. 
They were high school sweethearts, and they were married and had two children. Michelle resented Erica, and it was said by many that she actually hated her for taking her brother away. It is all about her. Really is. These kind of people. Yeah, Melissa and I are not fond of this type of person. Michelle also said that she was upset because her parents had told her that she needed to start paying rent while living on their property. They had already been living there for several months, and Michelle didn't think this was fair. She told police that she was sick and tired of everyone, quote-unquote, stepping all over her, and she didn't appreciate the pressure that her parents were putting on her. To support herself as a 29-year-old? Yeah. Excuse me, but if this doesn't scream entitlement, I don't know what does. It sounds like she was hounding her brother down over slurpy money from years ago and then felt like it was unfair at the age of 29 to have to pay for her own living expenses. She saw no problem with being unemployed and living at her parents' place with her boyfriend for free indefinitely. It sounded like she felt this was a right that she deserved. Oh, man. Around two weeks prior to the killings, Michelle began to suggest to Joseph that if problems did not get resolved by Christmas, they would definitely have to kill everyone. Joseph must have thought this was a reasonable suggestion, because on Christmas Eve day, these two weasels headed up to the Anderson family home, guns in hand. No way, it was just that simple. The talk him into it? Yeah, two weeks of planning. But she always played the victim, and she would have twisted and turned things to make it sound like everyone was against them. Right. So he's believing her narrative. Right, and she is not thinking rationally or seeing things in a clear lens. Right. Months prior, the dirtbag couple each purchased a handgun. Michelle chose a 9mm semi-automatic, and Joseph bought a three fifty seven revolver. These are the guns they would use in the killings. Knowing that they purchased these guns months in advance, and the way that they ambushed their family, totally speaks to premeditation to me. There was no conversation to try and work things out. They were out for revenge and blood. When the pair got to the house, Christmas preparations were underway. A roast dinner was cooking, and Judy was in one of the back bedrooms wrapping presents for her grandchildren, whom she was planning to see that evening. She had no idea that she had already seen them for the last time. Oh, man. Wayne was relaxing on the couch watching TV. When they entered the home, Judy and Wayne would have had no reason to be afraid or suspect that their lives were in danger. I am sure they would have initially felt the opposite. With Christmas spirit in the air, there is a good chance that they would have been initially excited to see their daughter enter their home. They likely even had gifts for her and Joseph wrapped up under their tree, I'm assuming. Upon entering the home, Joseph went straight to Judy to distract her, so she couldn't get in the way of what was about to happen. When Michelle saw her father, she pointed her gun in his direction and pulled the trigger. Wayne had time to realize the horror of what was happening because either the gun jammed or Michelle missed. The reports were not clear, but I do believe her gun jamming was the correct report. When he saw his daughter with the gun, he exclaimed in confusion, What the hell? Judy came into the room to see what was happening with Joseph right beside her. Joseph, seeing that Michelle had missed and worried that Wayne would come after Michelle, stepped in and shot Wayne in the head, killing him. Judy started to scream after witnessing her husband of decades fall to the ground. Joseph shot her on her body, causing her to also fall to the ground. Judy, however, wasn't dead. She was still screaming. Joseph said that he stood over her, told her he was sorry, and then fired a shot into her head, killing her also. That is cold. So cold. 
and just happened within minutes of entering the home. And the terror and the shock that this was their own family members, people that they had loved and taken care of, doing this to them? Mm-hmm. They knew that before their death. Yep. There was enough time for them to register what was happening. Those poor parents. You live your whole life to protect your children. Right. And they had already been trying to help them out, letting them live on their property. I think they had been there like nine months already. And making your child take responsibility for their own life is not being a bad parent. That's being a good parent. Exactly. Michelle and Joseph knew that Scott and his family would be coming to the house soon to celebrate Christmas with their parents. To prevent him from being immediately alerted about what they had just done, Michelle and Joseph decided to drag the two bodies outside and hide them in the shed. They hurried back into the house and began cleaning up as much of the blood as they could. They used towels and rugs to soak it up. A few reports said that they then tried to burn the evidence in a fire pit on the property. Once they were confident that Scott and his family would not suspect anything when first entering the home, they sat and waited for the young family of four to arrive. All of this took less than one hour. But that's a whole hour they could have changed their minds. They knew what it felt like to kill somebody they loved, and they still went through with their plan. That's a good point. Scott and Erica entered the family home, along with their five-year-old daughter Olivia and three-year-old son Nathan. They would have been excited to see Grandma and Grandpa, and likely new presents were there waiting for them. Michelle and Joseph said that their plan was to confront Scott. I am assuming over the money that he allegedly owed Michelle. I call hogwash. I think they were way beyond reasoning even before they entered the house that day. They knew exactly what they were going to do, and it wasn't negotiating. You don't negotiate with guns in hand. No, you don't negotiate by firing. Things happened fairly quickly after the family arrived. I imagine that they barely had time to ask where mom and dad were. Scott noticed his sister pulling out her gun and reactively lunged towards her and tried to get the gun away from her. Joseph tackled Scott to prevent him from stopping what was about to happen. Michelle shot at Scott four times, one of the bullets fatally entering his neck. Michelle then turned and shot two more bullets into her sister-in-law, Erica. In the commotion, Erica, already wounded, managed to crawl over the sofa, grab the cordless phone, and dial 911. This is the original call that was placed at 5.13pm on Christmas Eve. A later analysis of this phone call was able to determine that Erica was screaming, quote, not the kids, and no, to her deranged attackers. Her dying wish was for her children to be spared. How did the dispatcher think that that was just a family argument? I don't know. Joseph saw what was happening. He walked over to Erica and ripped the phone from her hand. He could see that the call was connected. He tore out the battery and smashed the phone to ensure no one else could call for help. This is when the 911 call disconnected. Again, it only lasted 10 seconds. And again, the 911 operator assumed she was hearing a party in the background. With the call ended, Michelle tried to shoot Erica again, but her gun was now emptied of ammunition. She hollered at Joseph to finish the job. Joseph said he let Erica huddle up with her children. She begged for their lives. She said to him, quote, you don't have to do this. And he coldly replied, quote, yes, we do, before shooting her in the head, killing her. Regarding the children, Michelle said she couldn't bring herself to do it, so Joseph had to. The kids were screaming and crying and clinging to their mom. These are some delusional dirtbags that think they have to do this. Right. Yeah, I do not understand it. They could have stopped there even. Right. Like, just don't kill the kids. Exactly. Little Olivia was curled up behind her mother, 
and Nathan was clinging to her chest. Joseph, being a disgusting dirtbag, had enough nerve to actually raise his gun, aim it at their little faces, and shoot these two innocent babies, one by one in the head, ending their short lives. Again, he said he apologized to the children before pulling the trigger. Well, what does that mean? Right? He shot Olivia first. And this next part really broke my heart. Nathan, being the last one to die, had gotten his little hands on the phone battery that Joseph had thrown from the phone. Nathan looked up at his killer and held up the battery as if to give it back to Joseph. Joseph said Nathan looked at him with, quote, the look of complete comprehension, as if he understood. He then fired one last bullet through Nathan's head. How could a three-year-old understand anything of that? what is going on in that house right now? Oh, he couldn't have. And I am sorry, but this little boy was not looking at you to tell you that he understood and that it was okay. This little toddler was likely terrified and trying to offer you the battery to stop you from your evil rampage. I hope his last little look haunts you every single day. I hope all their looks do. He actually tried to say that Nathan was understanding and okay that he was going to shoot him? Yeah, like they had this moment where their eyes locked and Nathan knew like, yes, you have to do this. I'm, I understand. Oh, you are deluded. Yeah. And it just shows how inward thinking they both are. Oh, he knew. He understood. No, he's three years old and he's handing you the battery because he's terrified of what he's just witnessed. Yeah. He likely thinks that that's why you're mad. Yeah. yeah. He's like trying to do the right thing so you won't be angry. Here's your battery. Oh, my goodness. It's disgusting. When police questioned Michelle about how she could do this, she said it was a combination between not wanting her niece and nephew to live with the memories of seeing their parents be murdered and also not wanting to leave any witnesses. They could have told on her because they knew and loved her. She said, quote, I just thought if they saw their parents dead, they'd be scarred for life. So then don't kill their parents. Mm hmm. I'm going to kill your parents, but then I have to kill you, too, because it's going to be traumatic. But you chose to kill them when you knew the children were going to be there. You didn't try to hide this horrific scene from them. They really cannot see past themselves. No. And they just delude their memories to fit whatever scenario makes them feel best. Yeah. It is one of the worst cases I have ever researched about just self-entitlement and pure selfishness. Joseph said he did it because he didn't want them to turn them in. Words cannot adequately express what a deplorable human you have to be to do what they did. And for what? Having a temper tantrum because she wasn't getting her own way? Over a few bucks and not wanting to pay rent? This is your reason? It's so senseless. Brain cells were not firing in their brains. Knowing that Erica's call had gone through to the police, Michelle quickly ran outside to lock the gate. And as we know, this was apparently enough of a deterrent to prevent police from entering. She's like, oh crap, she made the 911 call, I better go lock it. And it worked, which is still bizarre to me. But it sounds like by that point, it wouldn't have made a difference. No, it wouldn't have, but they could have been caught sooner. The family had to lay there for two days. And her friend wouldn't have had to find her. Exactly. That would have saved another victim. Yep, you're right. After annihilating most of Michelle's family, the dirtbag losers got in their truck and decided to start driving towards Canada. En route, they changed directions, thinking it would be better to go to Oregon. Not really having a plan, they aborted this plan as well and thought it best to head back to their home and pretend to discover the bodies, but not before ditching the murder weapons in the Stilligamish River. They weren't expecting to see the full-on crime scene underway when they arrived back at the Anderson family home. So they were going to get there and then stage finding them. Right. 
make their own 911 call all upset. We just got back. This is what's happened. We don't know who did this. And they had been gone for two days to give them that separation. But did they not recognize that the people had also been dead for two days? So that would put them still at the crime scene when it happened. Well, they had said that they left early in the morning. Oh. But they were actually murdered in the evening. Okay. They had that 18-hour drive, remember, to get to Vegas. Right. As I mentioned, the police sense something was awry when neither of them questioned what was happening or why they were there. The detectives asked Michelle why she thought they were all there, and she pretty much immediately cracked. She blurted out, quote, It's not Joe's fault. It's all me. As soon as I shot the gun, I felt so bad. Like, what the hell have I done? I'm a monster. To which I say, yes. Yes, you are, Michelle. And if you felt bad the second you shot the gun, why didn't you stop? Why did you shoot it the second time? Because she fired four times at her brother. Right. But the very first time that she shot was towards her dad and her gun jammed. So she hadn't even hit anybody at that point. If you felt so bad, nobody had to die. You could have turned around and taken off. Yeah, that is bizarre. You didn't feel bad. Well, she feels bad that she's caught now. That's more believable. Michelle continued on to give an over two-hour-long taped confession. It was recorded on a cassette tape in the back of a patrol car. This confession was played for the jury members during the trial. Joseph's lengthy confession was also recorded and played during court proceedings. Needless to say, Michelle and Joseph were promptly arrested and charged with six counts of first-degree aggravated murder. Bail was rightfully denied for both of them. And in Washington at the time, this was the only charge that you could get the death penalty for. First-degree aggravated murder. It's nice to see after last week's case that some bail is set appropriately. Right, or refused. The trials eventually began, and it sounded like they were tumultuous ones. Joseph was tried first, followed by Michelle. I will talk about the trials together, as there was a lot of overlap. Without going into a lot of detail, I did want to point out that their trials took years to finally begin which would have been horrible for the victim's family members and loved ones. There was a lot of debate about the death penalty being put on the table, so much so that the Supreme Court had to be involved. They ruled that the death penalty would be left on the table. Photos of the families were shown, broken up by detailed photos of the victim's post-mortem. Erica was shown with blood all over her face, and the two children were wearing Christmas pajamas and still had their boots on. The medical examiner made a comment about how Nathan was just a baby, and close-ups of his head wound were shown. It was pointed out that Joseph created those photos. An autopsy was performed on all six victims. Wayne and Nathan each had one shot to their left temple. Judy had been shot twice, once being to her left temple. Scott, Erica, and little Olivia had been shot multiple times to the head and body. A combined total of 14 bullets had been shot into the six victims. Where was the little girl shot? I thought she was hiding behind her mom. She was. They were all shot in the head, but these three also had shots on their body. Just in the chaos, she was hit? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh. Joseph said during court that at least they didn't suffer because he shot them in the head. Uh, but they had been shot in other places, too. Right. And they had to witness that terror. Like, they... They suffered. They suffered. They absolutely did. But he was trying to make it sound like, Oh, I'm not so cold-blooded because I shot them in the head. That was actually to help them not suffer so they would die quicker. Deluded. Yeah. Shut your ugly mouth, honestly. Close family members of the Anderson family actually had to leave the courtroom at times when they became overwhelmed with emotion. The proceedings were graphic, and it was said to be in an emotional court case. 
which I do not doubt one bit. It must have been devastating for everyone present. Judy and Wayne's other daughter, Mary, took the news particularly hard. No kidding. Her entire family was wiped out by the last remaining member of her family. It was said that she secluded herself and had a friend speak on her behalf. This friend, Mark Bennett, said, quote, I think reality has kind of hit everybody. The anger has turned to pain and back to anger. And now the question of why. She, meaning Mary, isn't in any condition to talk to anyone. I just have to say that I truly hope she, along with her sons, is doing better and moving down her path of healing. Joseph had the nerve to refer to Judy and Wayne as mom and dad during his confession. No, he didn't. He did. Well, he had been part of the family for six years. And it doesn't sound like he had much of a mom and dad himself. He didn't. He told the police that he never knew his father and that his mother was a horrible negative person who had ruined his credit. In fact, he claimed that when he did marry Michelle, he wanted to take on the Anderson family name. He didn't want her to become a McEnroe. He wanted to become an Anderson. There is something wrong with this man's head. He just murdered all these people. How can he even attempt to say he has an affinity for them? Right. Let alone a love. Yeah. Oh, mom and dad. And I wanted to be part of the family. Uh, You erased the family. Yeah. There were tiny little snippets when Joseph was overly dramatic during the trial, and I'm not sure that anyone bought it. He said about shooting Michelle's family, quote, I, I couldn't. I couldn't let them hurt her. I couldn't. She's all I have. I shot mom. The defense team for Joseph tried to paint the picture that he was just under Michelle's manipulative spell. The prosecution was seeking the death penalty for him. I mentioned that Joseph behaved dramatically. This wasn't consistent. At most points, he actually acted like he had no emotions. But on April 3rd, 2015, Joseph went full ham. And this little part I did actually show Melissa a video of. He took the stand and began crying and could hardly complete a sentence. When describing the look on Judy's face when he shot her, he put his arms up over his head and began aggressively rocking back and forth. About her, he said, quote, I put a bag over her head because I couldn't look at her and see emptiness where she should have been. It was said that he was heavily medicated with anti-anxiety and antidepressant drugs. He was so out of it that he even began laughing at times. It's really unnerving to watch. His emotions are all over the place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he can go from having this fit to then just talking calmly. Many believe this was an act to try and get himself out of a death sentence. Because he was kind of emotionless, and then all of a sudden, the death penalty's on there, and he's acting this way. Right, and how did he act when he was sitting at the defense table? Pretty calm. So it wasn't like he was having these erratic, emotional outbursts the whole time. It was only when he was on the stand when he knew people were watching. Right. He may have that I hadn't seen, but from what I could see, he was pretty calm. Hmm. And he wasn't out of it enough, though, to now blame Michelle for manipulating him into doing her dirty work. He said he wasn't excusing his actions, just explaining what happened. On the flip side of this, he admitted that the murders would not have happened without him. When being pressed by the prosecutor, Joseph retaliated by saying, quote, You know what? F it. If you want to kill me, go ahead. Kill me. I don't care. Oh, no, he didn't. <laughs> he did. I was like, excuse me? Your passive-aggressive tantrum does not make anyone feel sorry for you. Not at all. No. I'd have been like, okay, judge, he said it. They're done. Do it. Case closed. Right. Over seven years after the murders, Joseph was ultimately found guilty of all six murder charges 
and was given six life sentences without the possibility of parole on May 13, 2015. All jury members would have had to agree in order for the death penalty to be handed down, and only eight out of 12 were in favor for it. It took seven years for them to finish the trial? Yeah, it took seven years to even just get to trial because of all that debate about the death penalty. That is really sad for the victims' families. Oh, I can't imagine. No wonder Mary was having a hard time coping. Oh, yeah. Who could blame her? Yeah. To have that stress drawn out for seven years? Yeah, it would have been unbearable. About Joseph, Pam Mantle, Erica's mother, said, quote, He has no respect for anybody. He had no respect for the two people that were the kindest to him, which were Wayne and Judy, who took him in, and he shot them and threw them in the backyard. I have nothing to say about him. Because the jury voted against the death penalty, the prosecution decided to not even seek the death penalty for Michelle. Michelle's trial began on January 25, 2016. She was also found guilty on all six accounts and given six life sentences on April 21st. They both should ultimately die in prison. At one point, Michelle had actually asked for the death penalty. In June of 2008, she told a reporter from the Seattle Times, quote, I want the most severe punishment, which would be the death penalty. I think if I kill a bunch of people, I'm not sure I deserve to live. I want to waive my trial. She, of course, later changed her tune and decided that she did want to live. I think it was just her trying to gain sympathy. Just to play the victim again, one last time. Because if she really wanted to be held accountable for her crime, she would have pleaded guilty. She wouldn't have made all of the victim's families listen to the details of their death through a trial. A trial is traumatic. And so had she felt any real remorse, she would have pled guilty and saved them all that. You're absolutely right. No, she was just looking out for her. Michelle was said to suffer with mental health conditions after being arrested, but her attorneys never went for the insanity plea. Apparently, Joseph's defense team did attempt to use this defense, but it was denied. The prosecution stated that during her explanation to them about why she had killed her family, she brought up money over 35 times. They said she was filled with unadulterated greed. Was there ever any psychology report done about personality disorders? They just said that she had suffered from some mental health issues, but there was no real official report that I found. Hmm. She was sane. Oh, absolutely. She sounds like she was sane. Mm-hmm. As I already mentioned, Michelle called herself a monster. However, on the other hand, as I also mentioned, she blamed her family. At one point, she blurted out, quote, I wanted my mom, brother, and dad to die because they abused me over the years. I wasted my life because of these a-holes. It's not fair. What? Yeah. This is infuriating and speaks to her lazy sense of entitlement. You know what isn't fair, Michelle? Killing two innocent little children in cold blood. That isn't fair. And if you were being so abused, why were you mooching off your parents and living on their property? Why didn't you get away from that situation? She called them a-holes after she had viciously murdered them. What a dirtbag. If this wasn't wild enough, at one point during her trial, Michelle started yelling at the judge. She said the judge was violating her rights because she wasn't permitted to leave jail to find her own counsel. She was accusing her attorneys of lying to her and wanted to pick out new ones. That's a common stall tactic, I think. Well, again, to me, it's playing the victim. Mm -hmm. My rights are being violated. What about your family who had the right to live? It was said that she acted emotionless during her sentencing. That is until her sister spoke. Mary said, quote, 
Look at what you have done to your life. Look at what you did to your family. Your brother loved you so much. It kills me. I loved you so much. Just know they loved you. Pam Mantle, Erica's mother, also spoke. Her words were directed at Michelle. She said, quote, I don't think you're big and tough, Michelle. I think you are a bully and a coward. I am brokenhearted. Every day I miss those six people. Erica knew you would shoot the kids. She begged you not to, and you did it anyway because that's how you roll. You had the opportunity at any moment to get the hell out of Dodge, but you didn't. You decided to be a brat. She also said, quote, The pain of losing so many family members is never going to go away. Joseph is currently serving his time at the Washington State Penitentiary, and Michelle is at the Washington Correction Center for Women. Michelle has already filed appeals. The judge who sentenced Michelle, Judge Jeffrey Ramsdell, made a powerful impact before reading her sentence. He placed six carnations and place cards in the courtroom. He said to Michelle, quote, That empty bench and those six carnations symbolize the lies you've taken. The horrible fate that befell them should have never fallen on any human being. And I just thought that was so poetic with it, being carnations and them being from carnation. Mm-hmm. Erica's mother, Pam, has expressed hope that these two killers who took her daughter and grandchildren from her will, quote, just put the devil to rest and stop fighting for another day in court. She said she shares every bereaved mother's fear that her child will be forgotten. In response to this, Prosecutor O'Teal has said, quote, We will not forget them. We will go off to do different things, but we will still have them in our minds. And this is why we can talk about these cases. Right. so that the victims aren't forgotten and their stories aren't lost. Absolutely. I can imagine that that would be an important thing for those family members, wanting their loved one's stories to be told. To talk about the lives they lived and the good that they did while they were here. Yeah. Would be so important for those families to hear and to be able to share. Right. Because like Pam expressed, she didn't want her daughter to be forgotten. That this is just a news headline one day and totally forgotten the next. Mm -hmm. But the pain goes on forever. The judge addressed the Anderson family's loved ones when he said, quote, when confronted by a senseless tragedy like this one, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that most people are good, caring, and kind. Thankfully, evil is the exception to that general rule, even though it demands greater attention, which also seems to magnify its presence. And that is the case of two selfish and entitled little brats who killed their family on Christmas Eve because life wasn't fair. The incredibly foul dirtbags, Michelle Anderson and Joseph McEnroe. They were self-entitled dirtbags. <laughs> they really were. It did just make it so much more devastating that this happened on Christmas. It does, because now the families have to live with that through every holiday season. Not that you wouldn't have, like I said, that anniversary of the death, but to have so much emphasis put on Christmas every year by outside forces would just make it that much harder. I think that it would. And I really do hope that all the loved ones of all of the victims have been able to get a little bit further down their healing path and maybe use Christmas as a way to remember their loved ones and hopefully find some peace during the holidays. And not just remember that one Christmas with them. Right. And with that being said, we do appreciate each one of our listeners, and we hope that you will also have a wonderful Christmas with your loved ones. Making memories and enjoying the time you get to spend with your families. Hug them a little bit tighter this year. And we'll be back with you next year with more cases. Until then, see ya. Bye.
get up. Yeah. <laughs> now I feel like I have to yawn. Well, I think we should just. <sighs> Do we leave it in? <laughs> Me. Now, when you're going to be editing, you're be like, "What were we thinking?" That happens sometimes. I'm like, we're like, "Yeah, that was good. That was good." And I was like, "No, ladies, it was not. In fact, good. You should have redone it." Okay, no, that's good. At- <laughs> if anything, people can just see really how quirky we are, <laughs> and if they accept that, we appreciate them that much more for coming back. <laughs> they dispatched two patrol calls. Cars. They dispatched two patrol cars to the location. To the. Oh. They dispatched two patrol ca- cars. No one answered. Sorry. That sounded like a fart. It was my throat. My throat is like doing all these weird things right now, and I'm trying to swallow really quietly, but it's like got a. Like. <laughs> <laughs> she just did a throat fart, you guys. I promise it was her throat. Are you okay? <laughs> No, it's like doing all this. <laughs> oh. Okay. I can do this. I can do this. Was that your throat? No, your that was stomach. my stomach. Okay. <laughs> She's a noisy girl today. <laughs> Best kind of neighborhood. Yeah. I'd love you, but stay over there. In, In his, his mind. Sorry. <laughs> See, we're getting so good at this. We're finishing each, each other's other sentences. sentences. Yeah. No one will ever get their hands on that, right? It's not like we're discussing murders. Well, we are discussing murders, but (laughs) it's not like we're discussing murders that we have committed. Hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.